Tonight, let's turn to the book of Isaiah. How many of you were here this morning? Uh, So you heard about what we're doing on Sunday night. We're excited. We're shifting gears and moving our... uh, There's supposed to be a light on me for for all that we're trying to do there. Yeah, if you do that. Yeah, there we go. Good. Um, We're replacing our our Sunday night service with... uh, uh, what we're calling TBGs, through the Bible groups. We're going to be spreading it out uh, to about 11 different groups, over eight school clusters in the surrounding area. We're very, very excited about it. Uh, but for the next three weeks, we're going to be here on Sunday night, and we're going to be finishing up the first half of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah is divided into two halves, interestingly enough. The first 39 chapters sort of lay down the law. You know, they're God's judgments on the nation's and God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And then the last 27 chapters of Isaiah are all about God's redemption, all about hope and comfort and salvation. And isn't it interesting? They say Isaiah is like a little Bible. It's a mini Bible because the Bible, like Isaiah, Isaiah is 66 chapters, the Bible is 66 books. The Old Testament is the first 39 books, which do what? Lay down the law. Expose God's judgment on the nations. The last 27 books, the New Testament, are all about God's plan of salvation and redemption and comfort. And so the book of Isaiah is a little Bible. What we're going to do is we're going to finish up the first half of Isaiah. We're going to get through chapter 39, and then we're going to break. We're going to move into the New Testament, start with Luke. Luke, Acts, Romans, right on through the New Testament in our TBG groups. And we're very excited about what the Lord's doing. Hope you'll get involved in those groups and and really take advantage of these opportunities. Well, tonight we're in Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we pray that as we study your word tonight, Lord, that it'll penetrate our hearts. Lord, that you would not only, uh, Lord, speak your word to us tonight, but, but Father, speak your word in us. Get below the outer layers, below the facades that we like to put up. And Lord, speak to our hearts. Cleanse us through your word. Renew us by your word. Lord, your word, how can a young man cleanse his way? Only one way, by taking heed to your word. So tonight we're here, Lord. We want to learn, listen, and take heed. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In tonight's chapters, Isaiah is in the midst of six woes. Between chapters 28 and 35, the word woe appears six times. Chapter 28, verse 1, 29, verse 1, 29, verse 15, 30, verse 1, 31, verse 1, and 33, verse 1. The term woe is defined as a deep distress or misery. And these chapters describe how God will judge His people, even His own city, Jerusalem, and it will result in a time of terrible calamity or woe. Now when I hear the word woe, W-O-E, I think of woe, W-H-O-A. It's an exclamation. If you're riding a horse, this is the command you use to cause the animal to stop. Whoa! It's also used as an expression of surprise or amazement. It's a cause 
to pause and consider or reconsider. Whoa, did you see that? Well, whoa, I didn't think about that. When I see the word woe, W-O-E, I think W-H-O-A. For when trouble lies ahead, I need to slow down. Whoa. I need to even stop and think through how I can avoid some misery. This is the attitude we need whenever we come to a biblical woe. Isaiah 28 was a woe against alcohol. Slow down, stop, think about how you're using alcohol or abusing alcohol. Verse 9, though, is also, I'm sorry, chapter 29 is a woe against another kind of drunkenness. Verse 9 reads, they are drunk, but not with wine. The discernment of the Jews was clouded with another type of drunkenness, a spiritual drunkenness, a spiritual blindness. The Jews suffered from spiritual cataracts. They were blind to the word of God. The chapter begins, Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Now the Hebrew name Ariel means Lion of God. This was the name that Jerusalem took, but this was far from God's opinion of his people. You see, the Jews were living off a proud past. They hearkened back to the days of David when their nation was mighty and they ruled their pagan neighbors. But those were bygone days. Certainly at the time of Isaiah, they made alliances with foreign nations. They signed protection treaties. Rather than put their trust in God, they trusted in their powerful neighbors to the south, Egypt and Ethiopia. Hey, rather than lion of God, they should have been called chicken. Isaiah continues, add year to year, let feasts Come around. I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. God is saying, I am going to fight fiercely against Jerusalem as if they were a lion. In fact, God promises them funeral music. Heaviness and sorrow can also be rendered lamentation. The holy city won't be a happy city. There's going to be grieving. And he tells us why. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound. And I will raise siege works against you. Now it's difficult for us today to imagine the horrors, the mental terror that was conjured up in people's minds whenever they were faced with the prospects of ancient siege warfare. A siege occurred when a city was surrounded by its enemy an enemy army. The troops would immediately cut off the supply lines in and out of the city. No communications were allowed. The siege army would then dig in, and they would set up camp around the city. They would build uh, different barricades that would allow them to come up and attack the city from time to time. They would often throw catapults and throw rocks and stones over into the city. It was constant torment from the time the siege started until the time that that the city eventually fell. Often cities were kept under siege, not for years, but for decades. Eventually, no matter how well stocked a city might be, it eventually ran out of food. And its residents were faced with the choices of surrender, slavery, starvation, 
or often they resorted to cannibalism. When Isaiah mentions this term siege in verse 3, his readers naturally think of desperate, starving people dying a slow, excruciating death. This scares them. Verse 4, you shall be brought down, you shall speak out of the ground, your speech shall be low out of the dust, your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, your speech shall whisper out of the dust. It's kind of how I think a demon talks, you know, just kind of guttural, you know, low, bass kind of, kind of rhythm. You know, when, when the starving nation talks, Isaiah says, rather than roar like a lion, the people are going to speak like a demon in a low, mumbling, guttural growl. You know, as they say, it's hard to find a happy medium. You know. Likewise, there'll be no happy people in Jerusalem when the city is under siege. And yet God will deliver Jerusalem, verse 5. Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff that passes away. Yes, it shall be in an instant, suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. God is going to use the nations of the earth to judge His people Israel. But then in turn, God Himself will judge those nations of the world. In fact, Jerusalem will become the world's worst nightmare. Jerusalem is the flashpoint. The final battle will be fought over Jerusalem. We call it the Battle of Armageddon, but Megiddo is just the staging ground. The battle is over Jerusalem. Now, as we mentioned last week, Isaiah is a blend of both local and future judgments. Think of it this way. All God's judgments are precursors for the final judgments. They're basically shots across the bow to get us to wake up, to get us to slow down, to get us to back down. Jerusalem's enemy in Isaiah's day was Assyria, the mighty Assyrian army. According to verse 7, in the last days, God will judge a multitude of all the nations. And it shall even be as when a hungry man dreams, and look, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. It was just a dream. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed, he is faint, and his soul still craves. It's just a dream. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. The enemy dreamed of conquest, but God brought about defeat. Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep, and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. Now if you fall asleep in one of my Bible studies, don't you be saying that the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. That's not what's happened. You had too much for lunch today. That's what happened. You stayed up too late last night. But notice here, part of Jerusalem's judgment was a spiritual blindness. A spiritual slumber. Other than Isaiah, 
the prophets of God had become silent. They weren't trumpeting God's warnings anymore. They were asleep on the job. You remember a few decades earlier, oh, around 750 or so B.C., Amos predicted this very dilemma. As Isaiah began his ministry, Amos was ending his. And Amos said to the nation in chapter 8, verse 11, The days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Isaiah was seeing the fulfillment of what Amos had prophesied. You know, sadly, this is the condition in our day. There are places in America and around the world that lack solid, consistent teaching of the Scriptures. I'll never forget years ago, Kathy had a friend that invited her to the local Methodist church that hosted a support group for moms. But her friend was really frustrated. She told Kath, she said, maybe you can get them to talk about God. They're tired of hearing it from me. You know, I probably don't have to inform you that not every church in our area is committed to teaching the whole of God's Word. And yet it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. The Bible is the key that unlocks faith. I've heard it put that the Bible is faith's only fertilizer. It's what causes faith to grow. I'll never forget, it was C.H. Spurgeon who said, You know, I prayed and prayed and prayed for faith, but faith never came. I got up off my knees, opened my Bible and started reading, and faith has been growing ever since. The Bible is the key to faith. It causes it to grow. But in a spiritual famine, people end up lost. Faith withers because the teaching of the Bible becomes scarce. Verse 11. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. The idea is that nobody is bothering to open their Bible. People refuse to read it. Some people make excuses. Oh, it's just too hard to understand. It's a sealed up book. You haven't tried very hard. You haven't asked the Holy Spirit to help you, that's for sure. You know, I've heard it put, The man who won't read is no better than the man who can't read. Been saying that to my boys for years. The man who can't read is no better than the man who won't read. That certainly applies to reading the Bible. You know, I know pastors, I know people, who will fight for the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Bible. They will fight for that doctrine. They believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Problem is, they just never open it. They never read the Bible, let alone teach it to their people. This kind of thing was going on in Isaiah's day. Verse 13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Oh my, do you know anyone who talks a good talk? He or she says the right words, but their heart has betrayed them. They pay God lip service, 
but there's no conviction or commitment or sacrifice in their life. I've heard it said, a man who is right in his head and wrong in his heart is wrong all over. You know, some people miss heaven by 18 inches. That's the difference from their head to their heart. Guys, it's all about desire and willingness, not just words. Once there was a young pastor, he approached an older, wiser protege, and he walked up to the man, and he placed his hands on the old man's head, right there on his gray hair, and he says, I'm trying to find the secret of your success. The old man turned to him, and he replied, too high, young man, too high. And then he took the young man's hands, and he put them down and moved them to his heart, and he said, there, There's the secret of whatever success God has given me. It's down there, not up here. Isaiah mentions another problem, verse 13. And their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Yeah, yeah, they they said they feared God, but it was only because other people had suggested it or had commanded them or had made them fear God. That's not real fear, fear of God at all. Forced respect, is it real respect? True worship comes from affection, not just someone's suggestion. This is why I hate to see a worship leader try to whoop it up. Try to conjole the congregation into worship. I mean, you can't command or demand real worship. It flows from the heart. It rises up from within us. It rises up from a heart that's in love with Jesus. This is true worship. He says, yet therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. God is going to deliver his people from this siege. He's going to give them a reason to praise him. He's going to show them grace. They don't deserve his deliverance, but it's grace that creates true worshipers. Verse 15 Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Oh my. Never think that you can hide a deed or a thought from God. Never forget the married couple that came to me with problems and they they were seeking counseling. And I'll never forget what the guy told me right before they left the office. He, He turned to me and he said, please, what we've told you tonight is, is in total confidence. We, please, don't even tell God about what we talked about. We don't want God to know what we talked about. He told me that. He was serious. You can hide nothing from God. So Some of you have secrets right now. You think you're hiding from God. You're not. God knows those secrets. When you confess them, and you should, you won't surprise God. He knows them already. Intellectually, we would all agree that this is preposterous. Hiding something from God. But practically, have you ever acted as if you could slip a sin past God? Did you think He wasn't watching? Or that He'd fallen asleep? Or that He would buy your excuses? Have you been foolish? Surely you have have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, He did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? The Jews had it backwards. 
The clay is subject to the potter, not vice versa. The potter is sovereign over the clay. God does whatever he pleases. The clay answers to the potter, not the potter to the clay. It's not what makes you happy. It's not do what pleases you. The clay isn't the issue. The potter is the issue. You know, there's a riddle. Where in the forest does the lion sleep? And the answer, anywhere he pleases. So it is with God. God is the one who does whatever he pleases. You know, this is the verse that Paul quotes when he discusses God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. God doesn't ask me permission or owe me an explanation before he works in my life. God is the potter. I am just the clay. God seeks no one's counsel, including mine. God apologizes for nothing. God's ways are perfect. It's God's prerogative to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, even in my life. Remember Job? Job also had things turned all around. Job reacted to the calamity in his life by questioning God. He demanded to know why. And yet the more he questioned God, his respect for God grew smaller and smaller. His own pride and insolence grew larger and larger. Job got it all turned around wrong. That is, until the end of the book, when God puts Job back in his place. God turns things right side up. God starts asking Job questions that only God can answer. And in doing so, he shows Job just how little he really knows. God lets the air out of Job's pride. He humbles Job. Job learns to trust God even when he cannot trace Him. Have you learned that? Have you learned to trust God even when you can't trace His ways? Even when He does things you can't understand, you don't understand, or that you can't answer why? As Job, the Jews needed to submit to, not buck, God's sovereignty. Verse 17 tells us, Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and in the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest? You know, Lebanon was known for its cedar trees, and yet the land will be denuded, Isaiah says. The Assyrians, when they flood into the land, they'll come through Lebanon as they march to Jerusalem, and they'll strip the forest bare. But afterwards... God will restore the forests of Lebanon. The point is, God does what He pleases. God will make the mountains bald, then He'll turn around and replant forests on those same mountains. God is sovereign. He does as He pleases. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. One day the famine of the Word will end. Faith will be restored. It will begin to grow again. For the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed. And all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words." Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob, or or in essence the Jews, shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, 
They shall hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. Those also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. Though darkness and blindness covered Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, the forecast for Israel's future is bright and clear. He says, those who erred in the spirit will come to understanding. Here's a prophecy for the last days. Is God through with Israel? Absolutely not. Paul said in Romans 11 verse 25, that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so Israel will be saved. Today we're waiting on the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. When that last Gentile gets saved. I'm hoping maybe the holdout's here tonight. Would you please go ahead and give your life to Jesus? Man, you're holding up the whole show. But when that last Gentile gets saved, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God is going to rapture us. He'll snatch us up out of this world. And then he'll once again begin to purify and work through Israel. And by the time Jesus returns, after the Antichrist has betrayed the Jews, after they've been purified through the fire, they'll become receptive to the true Christ. In the end, all Israel will be saved. God isn't through with Israel. One day, they'll reverence him. Well, chapter 30 begins another woe. Woe. He says, woe to the rebellious children says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. You see, the king at the time of Isaiah's prophecy was Hezekiah. His predecessor, Ahaz, had sinned by failing to stand up to the bully on the block, the Assyrian troops. Assyria was sort of like the mob. You know, they moved into an area and they demanded that you pay tribute or blackmail money lest they attack. Ahaz bowed to the Assyrians. He paid the, the ransom. He paid the price. But Hezekiah went one step further. He sinned by seeking the help of Israel's neighbors to the south, the Egyptians. He turned to Egypt for protection. You see, Ahaz refused to trust God. Hezekiah put his trust in the world. You see, when trouble strikes in our lives, there's two places for us to turn. We we can resort to the flesh or to the spirit. We can rely on man or God. We can trust in the world or in the word. We can rely on God to intervene, or we can put our trust in human effort. And with compromise in his heart, Hezekiah chose a strange bedfellow. He turned to Israel's ancient oppressor, the Egyptians. If you're going to turn to somebody, why Egypt, Hezekiah? Hezekiah lived seven centuries after Moses in the Exodus, yet in his day, Egypt still represented bondage and slavery and hardship and sin. He's saying, why turn backwards? Haven't you learned there's nothing good for you down in Egypt? And, and, and I guess i got to ask you, why have you turned backwards? What has this world ever offered you other than frustration and hollow promises? 
What have you ever gained really from your former friends? They turned on you when you needed them. They abandoned you when it got tough. Their shortcuts turned into long detours. Why have you turned your back on God without leaning on Him to work His will in your life? God's will will often include a little pain and a little trial and a little confession. But if we'll respond positively and give God time to work, He'll work a wonderful process in our lives. I guess the question is, has fear, has uncertainty caused you to retreat to what's familiar, even if it's Egypt? Something that has oppressed you and robbed you of your freedom? I've seen people turn right back to the thing that had harmed them simply because it was familiar, because they were so used to it, because they just wanted, they, got, they, got, they had gotten used to the abuse and used to the bondage. It's time to break free. God wants you to be free. Once there was a woman who was aboard a little twin-engine Cessna when the pilot had a heart attack. He fell unconscious. She got to the radio and she started screaming, Mayday, Mayday. She was hoping that someone would hear her and help her land the plane. Well, the radio tower picked up her cries for help, but they failed to contact and connect with the woman because in her panic, she kept flipping through the channels, kept changing channels. Likewise, God wants to work in your life, but you've got to trust Him. And you've got to wait on Him to complete His work. You've got to stay on the channel. You can't keep flipping channels. Some of you are like that. Oh, you ride with God for a little while, but then you flip the channel, and you go back to the world, and it's back to God, back to the world, back to God, back to the world, to and fro. If you jump ship or change channels, you're going to hinder His deliverance and His work in your life. Notice verse 3. Therefore the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. In the end, this Pharaoh is going to prove as worthless as the other Pharaohs had been. Israel's going to be ashamed that they forsook God and trusted in Egypt. He says, for his princes were at zone. And his ambassadors came to Haines. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be helped or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. Egypt was only a shame. It was a shame that Israel trusted in her former oppressor. Notice Isaiah mentions the city of Haines. It was located near the mouth of the Nile River. Haines was a manufacturing center for Egyptian underwear and t-shirts. Pharaoh Michael Jordan I was its spokesman. Actually, the city of Haines went by the Greek name Tanis. And if you like Indiana Jones like I do, you'll remember in the first movie, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was, Tanis was said to be the home of the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting, according to history, Tanis was buried in a sandstorm And true to the movie, its ruins were excavated by German archaeologists in 1936. Well, Isaiah recalls it as the place that Jewish representatives struck a deal with ambassadors from Egypt. I guess you could say at Haines, the Jews sort of jockeyed for protection. 
Yeah, kind of jockeyed for protection there. Hey, this world will always strike a compromise. You got to know, the world wants to compromise. They want you to compromise. Choose to sell your soul to the devil, and he's always buying. He can't wait to get his hands on you. Took me a while to figure that one out. Verse 6. The burden against the beast of the south. There's a reference to Egypt. The beast of the south. Sounds like the Georgia Bulldogs. But it's, it's Egypt he's talking about. The beast of the south. Through a land of trouble and anguish. From which came the lioness and lion. The viper and fiery flying serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys. And their treasures on the humps of camels, to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called her Rahab Hemshabeth. Rahab means proud. It was an ancient name for Egypt. And here God names the Egyptians, the beasts of the south. Rahab sits idle. You see, Isaiah sees the Hebrew caravans... They're crossing the deserts of the Sinai. They're carrying treasure on the back of camels and horses to buy protection that will never materialize. Egypt will take their money, but when the chips are down, the Egypts will be nowhere to be found. The Egyptians will be nowhere to be found. They'll sit idle. They'll refuse to fight. They won't come to Israel's aid. Verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. You know, ever have anyone uh, enter the room at night and unexpectedly turn on the light? I mean, how do you react? Ooh, you shield your eyes. You try to cover over your eyes. Light interrupts your sleep. And for that, for that moment, you prefer darkness rather than light. This is how some people react to God's truth. They prefer ignorance. They're willingly blind to spiritual matters. For it's easier to continue in sin and unbelief than it is to show the radical repentance it takes to change your lifestyle and begin anew and open your eyes to the light. Well, when Isaiah turns on the light, their rebellious hearts cry out, Get out of the way! Turn aside from the path! Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. I mean, maybe this is not what you said literally, but perhaps this is the attitude you've shown. I mean, rather than Lord and Master... God has become an inconvenience in your life. God is now a hindrance to your plans and your pursuits. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says of the last days, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I think we can safely say that this time is upon us right now. I read this past week of a pastor in Massachusetts who was told by the elders of his church, he was given three instructions. 
they told him to keep his sermons to 10 minutes. To tell funny stories and to leave the people feeling great about themselves. Well, that eliminates the Bible. Because the Bible exposes our sin. You see, rather than truth, they wanted entertainment. They don't want church. They want a spiritual spa. That's what they want. But this, but this is indicative of a vast number of churches today. They're providing a consumer Christianity that's tailored to the likes and tastes of people rather than to the word and will of God. Folks today want a watered-down gospel that focuses on their betterment, their success, rather than God's glory and the good of others. Fewer and fewer pastors today talk about sin and repentance and brokenness. You know, it's said of today's presentation of the gospel, if it were a medicine, it would be too weak to heal, and if it were a poison, it would be too weak to harm. I hope you don't want a watered-down gospel. I hope you want the truth. Verse 12, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. Like a bulge in a high wall. It builds and builds until suddenly it pops and explodes. Fail to trust God. Rely elsewhere. And the bulge eventually turns into a breach. And he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel, which is broken in pieces. He shall not spare. So there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water from the cistern. God is going to shatter Judah's confidence in Egypt like a shattered piece of pottery. Imagine dropping your fine china on the concrete floor. That's what's going to come to their trust in Egypt. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. In returning and rest you'll be saved. That's the word to some of you tonight. In returning and in rest, you'll be saved. In quietness and in confidence, you'll be made strong. But you would not, and you said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. God will save the Jews from the Assyrians, but only if they wait on Him. If the Jews rely on their God, they'll discover that the God of the Hebrews is greater than the gods of Assyria. But if they rely on swift horses, they'll discover that Assyria has the faster horses. You know, our opponents have more money than we do. They have better technology. They have more political muscle. But if we trust in God, we'll discover that we have the greater God. In verse 17, 1,000 shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. When fear, not faith, grips a people, they flee rather than fight. And in the end, nothing is left. 
If Judah continues to put their confidence in Egypt, they'll be like a solitary flag flapping in the breeze. They'll be like a banner after the game that's just left there on the fence. Therefore, the Lord will wait that He may be gracious to you, and therefore He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Can you hear it? Can you hear the toe-tapping tonight? God is toe-tapping tonight. God is waiting. God is waiting on us. God is waiting on us to wait on Him. He wants to deliver us. He desires to be gracious. He's eager to act. But He waits on us to wait on Him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. There had been a famine in the land. A famine for truth, for God's word. But the day is going to come when that famine will cease. Bible teaching will be restored to Jerusalem. Folks will once again be guided by good teaching. They'll hear, this is the way, walk in it. They'll no longer flounder. They'll have direction for their lives. You know, I love verse 21. For ultimately, who is our teacher? The Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 13, Jesus introduces the Holy Spirit. Whenever He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit is the ear whisperer. That's what He is. Here in Isaiah, we're told that the teacher whispers from behind us. I'm going to tell you how you can discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. The voice of the Spirit comes from behind you. So often, we we listen in front of us for the Holy Spirit, but the voice of the Holy Spirit comes from behind us. How often... Does he speak to us through a teaching that we've already heard? Don't wait until you face a fork in the road to seek his direction. The whisper comes from the sermon you heard last Sunday. Or from the morning devotion that you spent in prayer. Or yesterday when you studied the scriptures. The voice always comes from behind you. Don't wait until you need a word from God to seek one. God's guidance, God's direction always comes from behind you. It catches up to you when you slow down and wait on Him. Verse 22. You will also defile the covering of your graven images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get away. You know, when Bible teaching is restored, God's people will lay away their, put away their idols. And understand, there are two kinds of idolatry. A lot of people don't understand this. 
One form of idolatry is the worship of false gods. But there is another, more subtle form of idolatry. It's the worship of the true God, but in a false or forbidden way. And God considers both to be idolatry. Both the first commandment and the second commandment. And the only way for us to understand how God wants to be worshipped, so we can avoid that second kind of idolatry, is to read and study the Scriptures. He says, Then He will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth. It will be fat and plentiful. In that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of His people and heals the stroke of their wound. Verse 26 has to speak of the kingdom age. When Jesus returns and rules over the earth. You remember in Revelation we're told it lasts for a thousand years. During that thousand years God will restore and redeem the fallen planet. Everything that has been damaged by sin will be rejuvenated by the touch of God. Understand what happened when man sinned. When he sinned originally. When Adam and Eve sinned, entropy came into the world. Entropy now affects all of nature. Entropy means everything is now running down. Everything is decaying. Everything is breaking down and running out and wearing out. I mean, don't believe it? Come over and hang out at my house for a little while. Because stuff breaks down. I was just thinking yesterday that I was going to get through one summer without calling Mike to come out and work on my air conditioner. But no, didn't, didn't work. Broke down yesterday. One of those capacitors, flux capacitors, I think is what it's called. Burned out, you know, just shorted out. Things are wearing out. Entropy is dragging everything down. It's breaking everything apart. The world moves toward randomness. Energy is being further dispersed. Even our own sun is winding down. Eventually, it'll flame out. Yet when Jesus returns, He's going to reverse the laws of entropy. He's going to infuse new energy into creation. Suddenly, the sun will be brighter. Seven times brighter. Plants will grow quicker. People and systems will heal faster. Men and women will live longer. The oceans will be purified. Good thing for the Gulf Coast. Plants will flower. And it will all happen faster than anybody thought possible. Because Jesus will come back and, and, and recreate this earth. Verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with His anger, and His burden is heavy. His lips are full of indignation, and His tongue like a devouring fire. When Jesus returns, it's not going to be pretty. Not at first. He's going to come angry. He comes to avenge God's honor and to punish man's wickedness. Hey, this won't be gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This will be the righteous warrior on a rampage 
We're told his breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. The nations will be drawn to their judgment. It's a destiny they've earned and they certainly deserve. And yet God says to Israel, You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept, in gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. And I love this name for Jesus, the mighty one of Israel. The Lord will cause His glorious voice to be heard and show the descent of His arm with the indignation of His anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempest and hailstones. Revelation 16 verse 21 mentions these hailstones. There were told, And great hail from heaven fell upon men, every hailstone about the weight of a talent. You know what a talent weighs? 75 to 100 pounds. 100-pound hailstones. Can you imagine? God is going to judge the world with hailstones the size of boulders. And why hailstones? Why is God going to pummel the earth with hailstones? You might have wondered. Remember the penalty for blasphemy in the Old Testament? It was death by stoning. And in the last days... God is going to punish this world for its blasphemy and for its idolatry. And He's going to do so by His law of old. He's going to stone the blasphemers, but the rocks are going to come from the only one who can cast them, the only one without sin. They're going to rain down from heaven. Verse 31, For through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down as He strikes with the rod, And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps, and in battles of brandishing he will fight with it. For Tophet was established of old. Yes, for the king it is prepared. He has made it deep and large. Its power is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, kindles it. Now, Isaiah mentions this terrible place that he calls Tophet. This was the deepest place, the deepest pit in the valley of Hinnom. Now, today, the valley of Hinnom is a lush, beautiful park. It's just outside the Jaffa Gate in West Jerusalem. In fact, it's a place you go to picnic and to attend a concert. But in ancient times, this was a sinister place. In the days of King Solomon, the valley of Hinnom became the center for his idolatry. In fact, child sacrifices were offered up to the evil idol Molech there in the valley of Hinnom. By the time of Jesus, this area had been transformed into Jerusalem's garbage dump. That's probably why it's so fertile and green today. A lot of uh, fertilizer went there. But a constant smoldering fire burned in this valley. And from the deepest pit, the fire was hottest, this pit of Tophet. Now Jesus used this whole image of Hinnom to describe Gehenna. Or the lake of fire. The place of eternal punishment. Jesus talked about a place where the worm dies not. Where the fire is never quenched. 
And here Isaiah describes the lake of fire. Notice what he says about Tophet. It's deep and it's large. Notice its fire is stoked by an endless supply of fuel. And it's kept burning like a lava stream by the hot breath of a righteous God. Remember Jesus said the everlasting fire was created for the devil and his angels. Notice here in verse 33, Isaiah says that it was prepared for the king of Assyria. It could be that Satan is seen here as the controlling force behind the Assyrians. Well, chapter 31 begins, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Boy, it's sad, but men of all ages are impressed with numbers and shows of strength. Yet God is invisible and spiritual. And this is why it requires faith to follow God. You see, faith sees beyond mere sight. Faith sees more than sight sees. In John 20, the risen Christ said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You've heard the old saying, seeing is believing. Not according to Jesus. Believing is seeing. You remember, Peter was present when Jesus spoke to Thomas. Peter was there with him. And this is why Peter wrote of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. He said, Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, Yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Guys, this is the key. Trust only in what you can see, And you are being extremely short-sighted. Faith has eyes to see beyond the visible and the tangible. You know, God did deliver Jerusalem. The Assyrians had the city under siege. But then one night, the angel of the Lord, Emmanuel, Isaiah called him, came with drawn sword. And in a matter of hours, 185,000 Assyrian troops were slaughtered on the ground. The massacre at midnight, you could have called it. In the quiet of the night, everything changed for the Jews. They went from fear and dread to, as Isaiah says, tambourines and dancing. And yet nothing visible signaled God's deliverance. No sound of a distant army. No cloud of a stampeding cavalry. No trumpet blast in the distance. Nothing was seen in advance. And likewise, just because you don't see any signs of God's deliverance in your life, it doesn't mean that He isn't right around the corner, ready and willing to save. But you have to have faith. You have to walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 2, Yet He also is wise and will bring disaster and will not call back His words. Boy, notice that. God doesn't call back His words. 
God's words can be trusted because God's words are final. God, unlike some of us, he thinks before he speaks. He doesn't utter a promise and then try to take back his words. But God will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. Only those who trust God will be saved. For thus the Lord has spoken to me. As a lion roars, and a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. You remember Jerusalem had called itself Ariel, or the Lion of God? But the Lord himself is the one who will fight like a lion when he defends his people and fights for Mount Zion. He says, like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day, every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. Sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man. And a sword, not of mankind, shall devour him. It'll, it'll be the sword of the angel of God. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Assyria will fall by the sword, but it won't be the sword of Egypt or of any other human being. The sword of the Lord will save Jerusalem. And to document the account, Isaiah will insert some history into his prophecy. When we get to chapters 36 through 39, he will tell the story of the Assyrian siege and of God's deliverance and the events that lead up to it. We'll get to that week after next. But next time, go ahead and read chapters 32 through 35 and we'll study them next Sunday night. We made it. Two minutes to spare. Father, thank you for your love for us. Bless us tonight as we go home. Help us to meditate on these things. Lord, I have no doubt that you've spoken to us in many ways tonight. Lord, help us to take home those two or three lessons that you really hammered us on, Lord. We need that. Help us to bring back some encouragement tonight, Lord. And help us to listen to the words that have been spoken behind us tonight. Because we're going, to reach, we're going to reach a fork in the road tomorrow. We may have a crisis tomorrow. We may have a decision to make tomorrow. And you've already spoken to us. You speak behind us. To take this way or to take that. Help us to remember, Lord, and to listen. Lead us and guide us. We love you so. We really do want to please you, Lord. Help us to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.